Hey everyone, first off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we're recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I'm your familiar stranger today, Kylie Wong-Dolan, together with Dr Jodie Lee Trembar. Hi, Kylie. Alex DeLoya. Hello. And Simon Theobald. Hello. I'm going to kick us off today. The thing that I've been thinking about this week is a blog that we released last week. It was about Adam Goods, an Indigenous Australian football player, and how he had been subject to racial vilification from thousands of spectators on the field when he played. We felt this was a really important issue and wanted to make sure that that blog reached more people than our content might normally on social media. And so we boosted it and paid for an ad on Facebook. What happened when we did that was a number of people commented on the blog. They continued with all the racist narratives that the blog was trying to negate. The question I wanted to ask is about social media and what role do content creators have in choosing the audiences that their content reaches and what are the ethics of targeting particular demographics with certain kinds of products and ideas? To give some context on the analytics that came out of that Facebook boost, what we realised was that the Facebook algorithm had actually picked up that this was an article about sport. And so it had gone out into its ecosystem, looked for people who posted about AFL and basically targeted those people. I suspect that the people that were commenting are not our normal audience for the content we create on this blog and podcast. And... I don't think if our goal was to kind of break echo chambers, I wouldn't say we succeeded on this occasion, right? But should we? Like, should we be trying? Like, is it actually a good thing if we're targeting demographics that we don't normally target with this kind of content? Yeah, and that, for me, actually gets us to the really interesting sort of issue. This show was, it was supposed to be about trying to reach different audiences. Mm -hmm. That implies that you're going to have unexpected and uncomfortable conversations because people who aren't like you are going to see things in a different way and therefore ask different questions of you, say different things. To what extent do we go, mm, actually, you know what, that wasn't the conversation we wanted to have and we can shut this down. To what extent is that a responsibility or is it a cheap cop-out? I definitely agree that it's really important to reach different audiences And in some ways, I think that response was kind of exciting in a way to think that our content could reach beyond a typical audience for this project. But yeah, I felt that the major risks that were entailed in that process were that those views were normalised and that they may have revived the kinds of discussions that, that I thought had been somewhat left behind. I do think it's really important. I think that process is was really helpful for me as somebody living in Canberra to remember, like, this is not the world. What do you think, Simon? Well, I think it helps when people read the article. But will they? Maybe this is the point. Like, maybe we're just being intrusive. We've forced ourselves into that space. Why should they have any responsibility to engage with our content and think about things differently? A democracy only works when its citizens are relatively well-educated about the issues that are facing them, right? And if we're going to say, well, 
everyone deserves to be left alone and not have to think about things because it's all too hard and too complicated. No, that's not even what we're talking about. It's I'm not reading because it's paid content. Why should they have to read it? Like it's it's a question of capitalism now, not just a question of educating yourself. Yeah, but it's us against like Gillette and. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the best a man can expect. I think if you're on Facebook, you're part of a contract which says that basically anyone can beam whatever they want into your life. So are we talking the social contract? No, no, the Facebook contract. But before you were saying, well, yes, that too, but before you were saying, you know, this is, that's a silly question because that's not the the way society works, right? Like no, that's not, the social contract. I think it is the way society works, but it's not the way that society should work. You know, we started this podcast basically in response to the election of Donald Trump. Mm. A lot of the discussion was how could America end up in a situation where the two worlds effectively were so disconnected from one another? You know, how, how could two groups of people have such radically opposed values? And part of the problem was that people weren't talking to each other. This podcast was set up so that people would hopefully talk to each other more. Therefore, I can't see anything wrong with beaming ourselves into the homes of people who might have profoundly different views to the ones that we normatively hold. Uh, I just think it's unfortunate that those people didn't read the blog, because they then could have actually engaged with the ideas. I think I, I really agree, but the other thing is we're not reading their content and they didn't have 50 bucks to boost their post into our worlds. I get vacuum ads. I mean, surely... But d- we're not asking them to read them. But it depends. You're asking them to suck it up. Oh, very nice. <laughs> Smooth. <laughs> Love it. You say that, but at the same time, like you were on there a lot returning comments and like, oh, have you read this? So you kind of were reading their responses. Mm, and was yeah. your mind changed? I think Did I'm it? really sympathetic. Yeah, I. it's not a foreign world. Are we about to That's... say that we're sympathetic to racists? I understand that people are brought up to believe certain things and that when you are told that the beliefs that you've been brought up with are racist, that that's deeply, deeply hurtful and causes you to put up a psychological barrier to anybody who's going to threaten your identity like that. How? So, Jodie, what are you thinking about this week? Well, I have been thinking about a question that we received on our website, and this is a message from Chris Finlayson. And Chris says that it would be great to hear more about being an introverted anthropologist. I mentioned something about this on a podcast a couple of weeks ago about needing to take bathroom breaks a lot because I needed, well, in the first month I needed to go and have a little cry, but later down the track it was mostly just to breathe and actually for me meditate because I'm an introvert. Introversion and extroversion is about where you get your energy and how that energy can be replenished. And so if you are an extrovert, you get energy from being around other people. If you're an introvert, then you get your energy from being alone and if you're around other people too much, then you will get depleted. And there is also the idea of an ambivert who can get energy from both in different circumstances. So my questions to you are, are you an introvert, extrovert or ambivert? Out yourself. And what do you do about that in the field? First of all, I do have to say, I am pretty sceptical of the whole like introvert, extrovert thing. As anything Probably more than an a- ambivert then. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, but as anything more than a quick way of just sort of loosely describing personality traits. It does drive me a little crazy when people put so much weight. That said, I know I'm somebody that if I'm interacting with people too much, I'd get over it fast. I'm over this conversation right now. Let's just all go. Everyone else everyone else is on their phones right now. I want you to know. No. Um, 
Look, from a practical perspective, it's being somewhat realistic about yourself and thinking about what you're going to study. So my research is on the popular solidarity economy in Ecuador, government policy. I went broad rather than deep. So I talked to a lot of different people across a sort of network of a concept for methodological reasons, but also for personal reasons. There is still the traditional sense of anthropology where if you haven't attended like the wedding of this family... Were you really doing field work? Mm. But I have encountered that a little a couple of times where because I didn't have those intimate moments, some people look at my field work and are a bit like, hmm. Not a real anthropologist. Mm-hmm. Mm. I can't believe I'm going to say this. My honest opinion is sometimes people today, particularly people, those of us who grew up in the West, want things to be easy. And we don't like the idea that it's going to be tough. I think that the reality is, is that field work is tough. It's a thing that I really enjoy. But especially when you're there for the first three, four, five, six months, it's f***ing hard a lot of the time. Especially if you're you're not going somewhere where you know people, if you're going completely like blind, you're learning a language, meeting people for the first time, it's really hard all the time. And I think you'll experience, have that experience regardless of whether you think of yourself as introverted, extroverted or ambiverted. But why not put measures in place to try to mitigate that difficulty so that you can get the best kind of work done? So like my whole research is about how like when you move to a new country, you end up cognitively overloaded. Well, anthropologists are in that place too. And if you end up completely exhausted and burning out in that first couple of months, you can't possibly be doing good observation. Like why would you not try and mitigate that? Good field work ultimately becomes like hanging out with friends, right? That's how close and intimate you become with the people that you're doing work with. But it takes a long time to get there. My compensation method or my strategy of dealing with it would just be to like take a minute and go, oh, this is really tough. Existential doubt. (laughs) And then go, okay, cool. Wow, your friends must have thought you were sweet. Take a minute for yourself and do that and then just keep going. I argue with the premise that you have to push through, that that's the only way. In fact, I think that's a dangerous premise because I think that's how people burn out and end up having to leave the field. I think there are times you have to. You know, I had really cruisy field work. I was in a lovely city in a place of the world that I love. And there were still days I didn't want to get out of bed, but there are times you got to do it. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's my only fear is when you when people talk about coping mechanisms and, you know, I've just got to take some time for myself. Sometimes I worry that it's an out. In this discussion, we're talking about coping and pushing through or not. It doesn't sound at all like you didn't push through, Jody. You did push through and you realised that it probably wasn't going to be worth doing that every day. And so put measures in place to make your life bearable. And surely so did you both. You, you found accommodation. You didn't mm-hmm. camp on the street. I don't want to imply that I think that you have to hate every minute of field work. I, for certain, have a whole bunch of like coping mechanisms that I use when I did field work. Like I went with my partner. That was a huge coping mechanism. Mm. There are a whole bunch of things that I didn't do because I was like, I don't like this person enough to keep following up that bit of field work or they make me feel uncomfortable or they make me feel like my Persian's not good enough, all these reasons. But if I could have my time again, I feel like I would have done better field work had I pushed myself on those issues. Yeah, but you're a masochist. Well... Nobody beats anybody up as much as you beat yourself up. Is that a general thing or is that just me? Yeah. You. That was talking like, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I think like you will always feel like your, your field work or your thesis or whatever... Like, it would have been better if only. And I have read your thesis and it's freaking amazing. So, like, I just don't know that I trust your opinion on this. 
Okay, but now we are going to ask for Simon's opinion. Yes. Simon, what have you been thinking about this week? I've actually mostly been thinking about an article I've been writing, but that's not what I'm going to talk about. I've been thinking about Kurdistan, mainly Syria and Kurdistan, and the current Turkish incursion. My normal angle on this thing would be to take a kind of position of, of moral outrage and say, you know, what do we as anthropologists do when we feel morally outraged? We should be, be doing something. But what I want to talk about really is this idea of what happens when you break up intimate relations. However you want to think about it, the relationship between the United States and the Kurdish forces in northern Syria was potentially one of convenience, for sure, but there were definitely intimate ties between these people. And I was listening to another podcast this morning. I was listening to the New York Times, the Daily. They were saying that US troops, they didn't know they were leaving either, and they literally just walked out of their bases and they left. What happens when social relations like that are kind of irrevocably torn asunder, when there's a sudden break and a split? What is the nature of social change that goes on and what are the kind of end results? What does it mean to yeah, to really tear something asunder socially? That's my question. Well, first I would say that I think it's not even just the humans that have been torn asunder, as you so eloquently described it. I think that the relations that have been entangled in a context like that are so much more than just human to human relations. There are ideas that have gotten tangled up that kind of require the the relationship space in order to be kept alive. There are there are animal relations, like and human to animal relations. There are yeah <laughs> did you just snort at me? <laughs> We went to the War Memorial here in Canberra for the first time on the weekend and a lot of the stories in the War Memorial here are about human-animal relations and how devastating it was, for example, for Australian Defence Force personnel to not be able to bring their horses back, for example, because of quarantine. There are animal-human relations there. The, the kind of ideas that you pick up from living abroad, no matter who or where you are, are different and then you get torn away from those so the ideas get broken like I just think it's it's a really complex web it's not just you know you remove the bodies from the space and then it's all over and done with you really I don't know if intentionally or not made that really strong analogy between interpersonal and like interstate relations you sort of did it in this way that was like you know they've had intimate relations maybe it was a relationship of convenience but now one has to like break away from the other and apart from the little giggle that it gave me I think there's really something interesting there about the way we make these things understandable through frames of our own reference. At the end of the day, a breakup between Kurdistan and the US isn't the same as a breakup between a couple, right? And yet our instinct is to say, heck to yes, it is. Metaphor, yeah. And how that shifts our understanding and our perceptions thereof. That's really interesting. I heard that loud and clear and I kind of thought that that was an undertone that I thought was more conscious to you. There really wasn't my intention. My intention was to kind of emphasise the degree of irrevocable split and what happens when societies and peoples do split. But those are the consequences that you're talking about, that Kurdish people are just, they're left so vulnerable now because of this. That's the consequence. Yeah, I mean, that is the consequence. But I guess on a more like broad level, like are relations retrievable once you have, is an irrevocable split truly ever irrevocable? Or is there always some kind of human capacity to turn the other cheek and go back? Yeah, I think it just depends so much on the power relationship. The only condition for Kurdish forgiveness of the US surely would be immense need. Not to harp on about my point, but I still feel like we're doing what I said a minute ago. Yeah. Yeah. Like, because we're talking about this as if the US is 
a person. Isn't that Maybe. the foundation of IR theory that states like look like humans? Introverted yeah. or extroverted? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Our instinct is always to bring it back to the lens of the singular actor. Yeah, you're right. And the I think metaphor that's is actually causing us to totalize, which is not actually very helpful, but it's an interesting point. Alex, what have you been thinking about this week? I study Ecuador and as my supervisor described recently, Ecuador is currently on fire. Mass protests in Ecuador for close to two weeks now. It's a long story as to how the country got there. The short answer is the president made an agreement with the International Monetary Fund to bring in a whole lot of neoliberal changes. The country's erupted in protest. As sort of the backbone of this has been the indigenous movement. The indigenous movement in Ecuador has been really politically active for a long time. What struck me about this and what I want to talk about is the way this time the country's really united behind the indigenous movement, but also the indigenous peoples have really been used in a really symbolic way, at least on social media, and I gather more widely. Like in a lot of places, indigenous peoples often symbolised the past, tradition, backwardness, conservative, etc., etc. But now they're sort of being symbolised as the defenders of the country. So my question to you guys is, what do you think it means for a people, particularly an Indigenous group, to become the sort of symbolic leaders of a movement like this? Do they see themselves as a symbol of this uh, movement or are they being used by non-Indigenous people? Oh, good question. If I said being used, I certainly didn't mean it in the sense of manipulated or exploited. That certainly matches with the narrative they've put forward. Right. I have a quote from the president of the Confederation of Indigenous Nations, Jaime Vargas, who, according to Al Jazeera, said that this isn't a demand of the indigenous people. It's the demand of the country. What I thought is interesting is this idea that an indigenous movement should take, particularly in a post-colonial society, should take on the role of national leadership because in most post-colonial societies, indigenous people are being relegated to the kind of periphery. And I should be clear, talking in the Ecuadorian context, if... Indigenous Ecuadorians have come to sort of symbolise this protest movement or the country more widely. I'm not necessarily saying that's necessarily a positive thing because I could see that also leading to different kinds of exploitation potentially. I also wonder the optics and appearance of Indigenous empowerment is something that is received better overseas than in the home state. And I wonder if in Ecuador that movement Part of its traction might have been because internationally indigeneity might mean something different now? I suspect so. In the Ecuadorian case, or at least my point is that, again, this has been picked up by the wider population more than I would have expected. Having said that, it absolutely ties into a wider unification of indigenous movements. I do think part of that is why this has started to get more resonance in Ecuador than it potentially has in the past. That's all we have time for today. I want to thank Jodie Lee Trimbar. Thank you, Kylie. Simon Theobald. Thank you. And Alex DeLoya. Thank you very much. I've been your host, Kylie Wong-Dolan. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. That includes Julia Brown, Ian Pollock, Liam Walsh and Shay Wen Leung. Our executive producers are the wonderful Deanna Caddo and Matthew Fong. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thefamiliarstrange. Did you know we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insights on today's episode. Thanks for listening and until next time, keep talking strange.